The Chattanooga family of shockwave therapy devices bring deep tissue treatments in less time, with less effort and greater patient comfort. Built around proven penetrating acoustic wave technology, Chattanooga offers treatment solutions that can reach up to 12.5 centimeters below the skin, making even the deepest causes of pain treatable and resolvable. Whether you're a growing clinic needing a versatile solution or a large sports medicine center that demands the best in recovery, Chattanooga has a therapy solution to get your patients moving. Learn more at djoglobal.com slash shockwave therapy. Clinical studies and device indications available upon request. Individual results may vary. Neither DJO LLC nor any of its subsidiaries dispense medical advice. Consult your healthcare professional for advice. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Clinician scientists Linda Trong and Christina Lee are here today to give us the rundown on their Functional Agility Strength Training, or FAST, program for ACL rehabilitation. FAST is an evidence-based approach that Linda and Christina developed and delivered in Canada as group rehabilitation for athletes of all ages and all abilities. And the program brings together their knowledge and skills not only as sports physiotherapists, but it also draws on Linda's PhD research in social support for injured athletes and Christina's PhD research in quality of life for young people with musculoskeletal injuries. Both women are passionate about supporting athletes' physical and mental recovery after a musculoskeletal injury, so let's hear about how they approach their clinical work. Linda, Christina, thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Thank you for having us. I just want to acknowledge that I'm on Treaty 6 territory, which is the traditional lands of the Cree, Salto, Nakota Sioux, Blackfoot, and Métis peoples. And Linda is currently coming to us from the sovereign lands of the Musqueam, Salewood Tooth, and Squamish peoples. Well, we're going to talk about ACL rehabilitation, particularly group-based rehabilitation. The two of you have put a lot of work into a group-based rehabilitation program. We're going to get into the details of that. But first, can I get you to start? And I'm, I'm going to ask you to kick us off, Linda. Can you let us know what the thinking is behind this group-based program of yours? Why group-based rehabilitation? What do you see are the benefits? We designed a group-based rehabilitation program called the Functional Agility Strength Training, or FAST program, um, back in Edmonton, Canada. And the thought process behind that was uh, we were finding that a lot of our patients was just finding it really challenging to adhere to the lengthy rehabilitation program. Um, so they'll return to us around nine months, hoping to be clear for sport, but having done nothing for the last six months. We've also had quite a few young patients who had ACL surgery, and they just were not enjoying, you know, getting a rehab program and working on it one-on-one or by themselves at home. And so that led to this conversation about how can we get a bunch of individuals coming together with the same goal of trying to go back to sport, exercising together to boost motivation and adherence. We just initially started with a bunch of patients who had ACL surgery would show up on a Saturday and then we would try to figure out where they were in the rehab process and run different exercise drills together. 
And then over time, we realized that we had to start catering to individual um, needs, but also their functional status. And slowly it evolved. But we realized the benefits of exercising in a group class was that, one, you get to exercise with a bunch of different people. So it's very motivating. And it's also very nice to see other people who've had this similar experience. So you get to have the shared experience. You also get to be a little bit more supervised so we can give real-time feedback. And I think the biggest thing is it was fun. Yeah, I'm really glad that you bring up that point about the fun and the social aspect. We also know from the research that uh, group exercise while it may not be superior, there it's been shown to be really effective in other conditions. So for people with um, knee osteoarthritis, we know that programs like the GLAD program has been very effective in improving outcomes uh, for people with knee osteoarthritis. Uh, there are a couple of studies that have looked at group rehabilitation for individuals with ACL injuries and have found that not only did it help to improve adherence to exercising, but it also helped to improve their confidence to do their exercises or self-efficacy, as well as their, um, their motivation just to exercise. Let's get into some detail now about the program. Now, Linda, can you give us the list, the rundown of what the key components of FAST are, please? So the key components of our FAST program was that it's a group-based environment. It's evidence-informed, so a lot of the evidence really directed our exercise choices as well as our criteria for the program, and that it involves a shared decision-making process, so really involving both the patient or athlete and the person who's delivering the program. And Christina, how do you put those components together into a, a well-functioning program? I think we were really fortunate to have the support of the rest of our clinic, so we were really lucky to work with other physiotherapists, sport medicine physicians, orthopedic surgeons. So we had a lot of volume in terms of just people trying to enter the program in the first place, which obviously makes it a financially viable option to provide. So I think having some type of network with other disciplines within your own discipline to provide a little bit of a source of patients to enter the program, no matter what stage or what level is kind of the key, key part of keeping the program alive. I'm keen to know a bit more about what the goals and the content and the structure of your program is. So Christina, can I get you to walk us through the goals and you might bring in some of the content and the structure as you walk through those goals? The main goal of this program was to meet whatever our patient's goals were. The majority of folks who were in this program would have been trying to return to sports. So that was probably the majority of kind of what, what this program was structured around. You know, some people just want to be able to hike or walk with their dog again or something like that as well. So it was just trying to, I guess, restore some level of activity, some level of sport for, for these people. Um, in terms of structure, it was led by a physiotherapist and we always had a kinesiologist uh, with us as well to help with the group supervision. Um, we had it structured in six week blocks with two classes per week. Every class was one hour each. And there were four different stages that we tried to tackle. Level one would have been like an introduction to strength training. Level two would have been an advanced level of strength training. And then levels three and four were getting into more of the dynamic return to sport movement mechanics. We always tried to do some type of pre and post testing at the beginning and the end of every levels to understand 
people are progressing the way that we would ideally like to see them progress. And also so they can see their own progress as well. And we always did a, a 20, 30 minute education session at the beginning of at the beginning of every level to make sure that we're hopefully answering some questions that, that would arise naturally on their own and just to provide a bit of a background of what to expect over the first few weeks and into the rest of the program. So it sounds like you've got a nice balance here of physical training, physical function, physical capacity work, but you're also bringing in the social and the education, the psychological aspects as well. Christina, you talked about education. What are the main components of the education program? What are the typical things that you would cover in FAST? The education components would have differed or been specific to every stage that we were offering, every level that we were offering. So in our first two levels where they're more strength-based, we would talk about, you know, obviously the importance of strength training, um, maybe what the ideal parameters of that would be, how much you're aiming to lift for, um, some of the goals that you're trying to hit at the end of the, at each of the six-week blocks. We'd also try to tie in a component of thinking long-term. So how the strength training is also going to ideally help at least mitigate or delay the onset of osteoarthritis following a traumatic knee injury. And then in levels three and four, a lot of our education was based around Again, like what are the upcoming drills that somebody's going to see by participating in this level, trying to tie in a lot of injury prevention or talking about injury prevention and how that's going to also optimize performance. But we'd also would run the FIFA 11 plus and we'd share some of those FIFA 11 resources on the internet with uh, patients afterwards as well. Um, trying to find that nice balance, I suppose. You've clearly thought a lot about what sort of content you want to put into that education program and really tailoring it. Linda, when does the program start? How early in a rehabilitation period do you get these patients, athletes into FAST? So we have a criteria for each level and it just depends on when the patient or athlete can meet those criteria. So for our level one, which is the introduction to strength training, most patients will reach that criteria between actually six and 12 weeks after their surgery or their injury. So the criteria to get into our first introductory class is essentially a quiet me. So full range of motion, no effusion, not limping, and being able to tolerate some load. So being able to squat or lunge so that they are able to be introduced into a strength training program. Can an athlete or a patient come into this program and use this program as their sole rehabilitation program after an ACL injury or ACL reconstruction? Or is this an add-on to your typical individual, the one-on-one rehabilitation that someone might go and see a physio for? Yeah, this is something that was structured as the sole components or the main components of someone's ACL rehab. So typically what we would see in our clinic was other providers referring patients into the FAST program, and then they would stay in the FAST program. We were lucky that we always had a physio who's running the program that was part of our clinic, so they could always communicate if there were things that were not advancing the way we are expecting and potentially refer that patient back to their own individual one-on-one physio. But for the majority of people, once they entered FAST, they were more or less sticking in fast and that was their their main chunk of rehab. And Christina, how do you make this thing work? 
What sort of space do you need? What sort of equipment? What's sort of the bare minimum? If I was looking to set up my own fast program, what would you recommend that I look for? I don't even know how, how to describe how much space we had, but it was a fair amount where you could do running drills, you could do acceleration drills, deceleration drills, change in direction drills without immediately running into a wall or anything like so that. So like a basketball um, court so, or a, an, a bit of outdoor space depends on the time of year, I guess. Yeah. For, for us, we were fortunate to have a track right beside us. So whenever it was nice outside, we could take people outside and do those drills. In terms of other equipment, I believe we had about five or six squat racks and variety of barbells, 15 and 20 kilo barbells, a variety of plates, dumbbells, just a lot of strength equipment, I would say was our main thing, resistance bands. I don't think we ever needed anything too fancy. I agree. Um, And then for our later levels, um, where we introduced more dynamic drills and sport-specific drills, we just needed space and creativity and just cones. And Linda, Christina mentioned earlier that you do some testing as well. Do you do that in the group environment or is the testing done sort of separately as a one-to-one back in the clinic kind of a scenario? And what sort of testing are you doing? So we do the testing as part of the class. We did this for two reasons. One was feasibility. So it allowed us to test a bunch of different patients at once and also got them involved in the testing. So we partner patients up and it made it really fun to do some of the testing. The testing that we did included a combination of physical and psychological testing. So we would look at um, three rep max testing to get an indication of uh, how heavy they're lifting in their squats and their deadlifts. We would also do a single leg squat test to failure or single leg rise test just to see how many, a little bit, a sense of their strength with neuromuscular control. And then in the latter stages, they will do the, the ACL RSI just to get a sense of their psychological readiness to return to sport. The ACL RSI is the questionnaire, ACL return to sport after injury questionnaire, looking at confidence, fear of injury and emotions about returning to sport. Yes. And we will look at a battery of hop tests as well to get a sense of where they're able, their functional capacity. Linda, your PhD work is really focused on social support for people who have had an ACL injury. How does what you are working on and what you've learned in your PhD influence what you do in the clinic and particularly in the FAST program? Social support can be leveraged to improve outcomes in many different ways, but more so improving psychological outcomes. So when you have a good social network, that can decrease your anxiety around the injury. It can help to boost your confidence to exercise, your confidence to return to sport. Um, So some of my work will be looking at how social support can influence, say, adherence to exercising. How this has influenced my clinical practice is I've now tried to help identify or chat with a patient about who do they have in their life to help motivate them to exercise, or even trying to connect them with other people who are injured. I realize how important that is to have this shared experience. And so I think that just becomes now part of a little bit more of my my history. We were taught to ask about their social context, but now it's just more of a bigger deal that we need to identify important people in their life who may come along their journey with them. And also what's my role as a physiotherapist and how can I build this relationship to help support them as well? Christina, your PhD work is focused on 
quality of life, particularly after a knee injury, not only ACL injuries, but I know you've got a particular interest in ACL injuries and that's clearly coming through in what we're talking about today. I want to ask you the same question. How has your PhD work influenced the way that you approach designing, whether it's group-based rehab or the clinical work that you do? Uh, with the lens of health-related quality of life, which encompasses the physical, psychological, and social aspects of health, Linda's already touched on how I think the social component can be a really interesting aspect for us to leverage in ACL rehab because it is a long, arduous process. As physios, we've always been pretty good at tackling physical outcomes. I think that's what we've been trained to do. So I think it's a lot of it is trying to consider some of those psychological pieces, contextual pieces. Having gone through an ACL injury myself a few years ago, I think it gave me a new perspective of how important the psychological pieces were and how important having that support network was. So I hope that that is kind of reflected in this program that we always try to facilitate a really open, inclusive, safe environment and fast between our physios and our kinesiologists and That was something that I found that definitely some people utilized us and and asked us questions a little bit more than others. But I think just having us there to kind of bounce ideas off of questions off of, I think that was really crucial that we're moving away from just thinking about physical numbers, values, that sort of thing, and actually thinking a little bit more about that psychosocial component. Yeah. And I wonder whether part of it too is that sense of, I'm in a relatively safe place. I know I can push myself and I can, I can push some of these either tests that you're asking me to do or some of the sports specific drills that we're doing. There's a bit of healthy competition among different participants in the group, but there's still that sort of safety blanket, if you like, of you both there. And I wonder whether you'd like to comment, and I'll go to you, Linda, first, comment a little bit about that and how you sort of foster that balance between healthy, challenging and and pushing people enough versus pushing too far and and perhaps tipping over into flaring the knee up or, or worse. We were fortunate that because we were able to work with a lot of these patients and athletes twice a week, over time, you just built this really, I I would like a strong therapeutic relationship with them. And I think that is what allowed us to get a sense of how much can I push this individual and or or hold back. And then we can also have this constant dialogue because we're there in real time. So if we were doing a drill that they discussed that they were afraid of, so one of the things we would do is ask a lot of the patients, what are they afraid to do? And if one of them said, I'm afraid to land from a jump and get pushed because that's how I injured my knee. As we start to do some of those drills, we can, one, we already know that that's something they may be afraid of, work with them to modify so that they feel comfortable with. I also think them seeing other people doing it um, gives them some confidence, but I think we're always allowing them to have the autonomy to decide how much do I want to do? How much do I not want to do? And always allow them to have that power. And I think us seeing them twice a week slowly helped us to build that environment. Christina? The majority of people that we see, I would say in fast or even not in fast from my own clinical experience, are usually ones that need to be pushed, just kind of gently nudged, I think, towards the that road of progression, rather than trying to reel them back in because they're, they're maybe a little bit more aggressive uh, with their approach to rehab. So I think it was, it was really nice to have us there to say, hey, you know, I think you can add on another five kilos to this lift, or yeah, I think you should be able to 
try this jump, even just in a modified distance or something like that. Let's talk a little bit about the practical side of this. How do you accommodate things like different levels of physical function? If you've got people coming into the program at different stages, how do you cope with that? What about people who are at who have got different return to sport goals. Someone might be wanting to get back to, I don't know, soccer at a competitive, fairly high competitive level. And some might be thinking they don't want to go back to pivoting sports at all. So Linda, if I could start with you, how, how do you, how does this, these sorts of practical considerations come into your program? I think that's why there's a need to set criteria um, for each of your levels, if that's um, how you address this. So we use the evidence to inform the criteria for each of our levels and we remove time. So if you were 12 months after an injury and you still couldn't do A, B and C, it did not matter. You might have to go into the introductory class. And we set that standard very early on to the point where everyone kind of accepted that. And it might have been challenging for some patients who felt that if I'm 12 months, I should be in this level four. But I think we kind of really try to push that criterion-based um, rehabilitation. And that was how we actually started to be able to group people who were similar function in certain classes. For the goals, this is why it's really important to, at the beginning of each class, we tried to spend time figuring out um, what each person's goals were and what sport they wanted to go back to so that we can try to build that program or the next six weeks to try to match that. So we were lucky if we had 10 different people who all want to return to soccer. Then the next six weeks, we could really cater a lot of our drills and exercises to match their goals. But we actually tried to design the program to be quite generic, to target all types of sports. So we sat down and we decided, what are the generic movements that we need every athlete, whether they were jumping, skating sport, to be able to do, to become a more robust athlete? So we had this generic program. What are the functional capacity we need? In our four different levels, our our fourth level was kind of our quote unquote return to sport level. And that would have been catered a lot more to your pivoting athletes and cutting athletes. So if we had somebody, again, who is just trying to get back into long distance running or maybe a court sport or sorry, like a like tennis or, or badminton or something like that we would just lay out the options and say, you know, this is something that is, it's there. You, you can take it if, if you think it's going to benefit you, but it's probably going to be a little bit, the content of it's probably going to be a little bit more relevant to somebody who is returning to basketball, football, soccer, something like that. I'd say the majority of people would go through all four levels regardless, just to pick up a few of those skills and kind of see what's going on. But for sure, I think it's all about being relevant to the patient. And, and if, you know, a certain level is not really meeting their objectives, then we would say that's fine and we can find another way to work around it. And Christina, is there an ideal candidate for FAST or for other group-based rehab programs? Honestly, I think it's just somebody who's motivated to get their rehab done. I can't think of too many people that we would have excluded necessarily from the program. The only times I think we might have said, you know, this is maybe not the greatest idea for you right now is people who had some type of overuse or chronic injury that they were trying to recover from. Um, just because I think at least at the beginning stages of those things, you might want to be a little bit more tailored 1v1 for what that person needs. 
And again, like Linda said, this is a little bit more of a generic program in terms of how we structured our exercise classes and that sort of thing. But realistically, we had people in here, it was definitely catered towards ACL rehab. That's how we structured it. But we had people in the classes who had uh, like patellar dislocation, a true knee dislocation, so multi-ligament dislocation. We've also had a couple of people with ankle issues roll into at least the strength classes. There was a variety of people. And again, I think it ultimately comes down to, does the class meet some type of goal or objective that you're trying to hit? And if it is, and and your your symptoms maybe are a little bit more stable, then I think it was a, a, a good program for you to pursue. Linda, let's finish by talking a little bit about the feedback that you get from participants. What do people love about the program? What what do they not love? What would your advice be for folks who are listening today and thinking, yeah, I might be able to set up one of these programs? The number one feedback we get is that it's super fun and it puts a spin on rehab after a major injury. I think it also helps to improve accountability. They really like coming twice a week, being able to hang out with other people, and again, just have fun and not make it feel like they're exercising. Sometimes it's hard to pick a time that caters to everyone. We ran our group classes in the evenings just because it was the population that we were dealing with, so just not during school times. And that just didn't work for some people, so that might be a challenge is finding what, what time works for your population. And we found that the uh, running the classes twice a week was actually more economic for a lot of individuals. So instead of paying twice a week for 1v1 treatment, this allowed us to actually see them for a lot longer and uh, stretch out some of their funding for physiotherapy. But then on the flip side, even though it was more cost effective, for some people, it was still expensive as well. So then there's always kind of these pros and cons. And as much as we try to individualize the the exercises within the class, we had a generic version of everything. But if, say, an exercise like a certain squat was hurting someone, we would try to modify it. There's always so much you can individualize in a group-based program. So there will be individuals who just need a little bit more time or one-on-one care. And so then we just try to identify those individuals a little early if we just weren't meeting their goals. So sometimes, although group-based rehab is awesome, there are certain people that just do better with uh, one-on-one treatment. I'm really grateful to both of you for joining me today, sharing this wonderful program. I think it's a great template and a really good example of where you see an issue and a uh, problem to solve and then kind of put the pieces together, think really carefully about it, and then engineer something that meets the needs of a whole bunch of people in a, as you say, Linda, in a fun way. So congratulations, kudos, and thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm